Science starts with the words, I don't know. When we admit that, we can start to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Are we alone? Will we settle other worlds? How will we survive climate change? What will humanity look like in a thousand years? Join the greatest science minds and me, Dustin Driver, as we go through the unknown. Decarbonizing everything is something I've been thinking about for 10 years. In this podcast, I talked to scientist and philosopher John McCone about his excellent article, Blueprint for a Solar Economy. John outlines a way to transition from fossil fuels to solar power using some of our existing fossil fuel infrastructure and existing solar technology. He paints a pretty hopeful picture of a solar powered society that produces almost no carbon emissions. It's a hopeful picture of the future, which is something we all really need right now, and I really need, especially after the last podcast on the pending global climate apocalypse. John and I talk about a lot of really interesting things, including using existing gas pipelines in the solar-powered world and jet engines that run on powdered iron. Metal. You can read John's article on his website, johnmccone.com. Link in the show notes. So without further ado, here's my interview with John McCone. For this podcast, I want to yeah. do something a little different. It's coming really on the heels of a big downer of a podcast that I just did hmm. that you listened to about the coming climate apocalypse, which may or may not happen, but it's looking more and more likely every year, right? And um, I... It did well on Twitter, right? Yeah, it, it did, it did like, pretty well, yeah. Down. You know, and unfortunately, those sort of doom and gloom pieces tend to do well um but i think what what i really want to do is is try to look at the bright side and and one of the biggest takeaways i had from that article is that i got a lot of feedback from people saying hey um you know humans are resilient and there's a lot of technology out there to help us overcome these challenges and actually kind of fix a lot of the damage um that we've done oh, yeah. to the planet and um Really, there, there's no other choice. I mean, the the other choice is just is is you know, apocalypse. So, I thought this is a perfect lead, and I wanted to get you uh, to to talk a little bit about your article on uh, the 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 solar economy, because I think it's a a a, a perfect lead in to fixing the problems that we have and building a more sustainable future. Yeah, the article was about how we could power everything with solar energy. I suppose there's four main contenders for for powering everything. The solar power and wind power. And nuclear fusion hasn't been developed yet. Breeder reactors, one sizable gigawatt breeder reactor has been built, but it kept that was the Super Phoenix in France. And it kept, but it kept breaking down, so it, it only produced about 10% of the energy that it was supposed to. There's two small breeder reactors in Russia, uh, but but the, the the but the point is the breeder reactors in the prototype phase they're 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 a long long way away from from being rolled out in any sizable quantities, and they have a lot of problems in terms of maintenance and all that. Uh, then there's wind power and solar power, and wind power is the one that's cheapest at the moment, but uh, 
I think uh, I, I read I read a report anyway that said that uh, global wind resources are maybe about five times global energy needs, um, whereas global solar resources are about ten thousand times our energy needs. You know, it's it's the most promising source of energy uh, for for supplying our our energy needs because solar panels work right now. Solar panels solar panels work right now. Uh, and that, that's more than you can say for breeder reactors and nuclear fusion power plants. I mean, solar panels are out there. They're being produced economically already. Um, and, and a really big advantage of solar power versus wind power is that solar panels are getting better and better while staying the same size. Whereas wind power is getting cheaper and cheaper, but it's only getting cheaper and cheaper because the wind turbines are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the wind turbines are constantly getting larger, whereas the solar panels are staying the same size and they're getting more efficient. And, and cheaper as well. Uh, so so that's so besides the su sun resource being more direct than wind because wind comes from the sun. So you know if you go to the straight to the source, the sun resource is, is a more direct form of renewable energy than than wind. Um, it, it's also and it's also much larger. Um, the other thing is that uh, that the solar that solar panels um, that they you know that they they can be. They don't have any moving parts. They can be manufactured. They, they, you know, they are being manufactured and they're being thrown, you know, churned out of the factories and um, and they're growing very rapidly. Uh, solar solar capacity has been increasing by about 27% per year exponentially for for the I think since 2010. So an exponential curve is. Uh, is, I mean, at the moment, the amount of energy coming from the sun is, I mean, at the moment, the amount of uh, energy being turned to solar, it's its about, I think, solar power represents 2 to 3% of, of of renewable energy even. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's more than that now, but uh, but yeah, it's it's, uh, it, it's not, not a lot, but, uh, but because it's growing by 30% per annum, it doubles every three years. And um, yeah, if, if you double every three years for... A decade, that's eightfold. If you mm -hmm. double every three years for two decades, that's sixty-fourfold. So, so if if that doubling can be sustained for you know even two or three decades, then you're talking about solar power powering. You know, c could in fact power everything. Yeah, yeah, and and um, I, I like what you said earlier. I think uh, I want to circle back to just the very very basic physics of where energy comes from and, and and it's a great point all energy uh wind ultimately almost all of the energy sources uh come from the sun even even the non-renewable energy resources um we we're talking about you know fossil fuels ultimately all came from the sun it's just it's just distilled and actually quite distilled quite inefficiently over the course of millions of years into uh these these carbon carbon that uh, hydrocarbons that we can burn. So, depends, like you said, it depends which it depends which mm -hmm. sun. That uh, that uh, apparently that the latest um, theory for where uranium comes from right. is from neutron star collisions. Mm. That uh, that yeah that that uh, that they they they've observed a neutron stars colliding. And they've looked at the spectra and all that, and that's and they reckon that that's they've seen that the spectra is consistent with, you know, God knows how many Earth's masses of gold being produced and you know, all these heavy metals. Apparently, 
um, yeah, uranium and and all the and nuclear energy uh, comes from neutron star collisions, which which yeah, well, neutron stars were were originally uh, you know were originally suns. So mm. so it comes from some sun. It doesn't come from <laughs> our sun, but yeah, but it does come from a, another sun. That's a, that's uh, quite fascinating and and poetic actually, uh, the idea um, of uranium and uh, coming directly from neutron star collisions. Yeah, apparently orig originally they thought that uranium came from a supernova, mm -hmm. but uh, apparently a supernova happens too rapidly. It doesn't produce apparently the ones heavier than iron. It goes up to iron, but it can't go higher than that. Uh, but yeah, the the stuff higher than iron. Apparently, the latest theories say that the stuff higher than iron comes from neutron star collisions. Um, but, but yeah, so, so, so the only, the only source of energy that wouldn't come from a sun would be, uh, would be geothermal. So mm -hmm. geothermal is just, is just the, is just the, the, the gases sort of getting, you know, falling in under their own gravity and then they heat up as they, as they fall in under their own gravity. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's the only intrinsic energy to the earth and then, and then the nuclear power is the other one, and that that would come from um, oh, a tidal. Tidal comes from the moon, as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so tidal comes from the moon. Geothermal energy is the Earth's gravity, and then nuclear power would be the energy from neutron stars that aren't our sun. Mm -hmm. so, so so those would be the three forms of energy that wouldn't come from the sun. And they're all, but they're all dwarfed by the energy that comes from the sun by orders of magnitude. Well, I mean, with, yeah. in the case of in, in the case of nuclear energy, um, the kind of the power you can derive from it depends on how rapidly you burn through it. Mm -hmm. As renewable energy goes, the, the, every, every renewable energy that isn't related to the sun is is dwarfed by the sun. Yeah, and and I like you know you made the comparison with the other renewable energy sources that are on the table right now, and you make a pretty bold statement that I really like in the article. You say. The argument we need an energy mix is a false one designed to humor obstinate people obsessed with pet dead-end technologies. We don't need an energy mix. We just need solar. I love that. I love that um, clear statement that solar power just outclasses all the rest of renewable energies um, for the reasons you mentioned earlier, the fact that it's solid state, it's, it's getting better, um, it's reliable, uh, it's easier to manufacture. There are very few moving parts. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, and the the other the, the really important thing is the learning curve. How how industrial learning curves work. That um, that if you just focus on it, that it's really hard to make anything cheap. It, it's really hard to develop a new product, and it's really hard to bring that product down in price. So and and also there's a finite number of scientists. You know, there's only so many highly skilled workers in the world. So if all those highly skilled workers are focusing on solar power. That's going to do a lot more to bring down the price of solar compared to if you know twenty percent of scientists are doing solar power, twenty percent of scientists are doing wave power, twenty percent of scientists are doing geothermal power, you know twenty percent of scientists are working out how to fly kites, you know and another <laughs> and it, 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 you, if you if you split all the scientists up doing all sorts of different things, then um, then you'll end up with a lot less effort devoted to bringing solar down in price. The resource of solar energy is massively more than than human beings need uh, for a start, and secondly, it's yeah, it, it's you know the the lack of moving parts as well. I don't think it makes sense to to split efforts. And this is an interesting thing about carbon prices. 
I think one thing that carbon prices don't take into account is kind of R&D bumps that like when, when you when that there's a certain amount of, it's like you're like you're pushing something up a hill um, like it's like pushing a rock up a hill and then then once it's the ball gets rolling it goes down 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 in price but you need to like do that initial pushing to get the to get the cost down in the first place I think that's one problem with uh, carbon prices is that they only incentivize the inc the production of the most cheap form of carbon free electricity whereas there may be well, solar power being an example of a, a form of electricity that's, at least in some parts of the world, is is still quite a bit uh, more expensive than wind. But I, I think I think solar is just going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as time goes by. So in the long run, solar is going to overtake wind. And if solar overtakes wind in the long run, then to a certain extent, putting all these resources, all these kind of engineers and scientists to work on wind turbines when they could be you know, getting solar down that learning curve faster, it seems to me a bit a bit wasteful. And another thing about wind is that uh, wind turbines actually last less than they're supposed to. That, uh, you know, you, you build all these wind turbines and in 15 years time, they uh, they they have to be replaced quite often. It, it quite, quite often, like the, I think there's quite a few, there is this report that is, I've read that that says that the, the efficiency of wind turbines goes down, you know, shockingly quickly i think i think some some in some studies like i think i think in some some fields of wind turbines they lost 30 percent of their efficiency within five years mm. and i would imagine that would just have to do with bearing wear you Something know just like that. very yeah. simple mechanical i mean a, a uh you know a wind turbine is something that spins there are bearings <laughs> that as they wear they become less efficient and uh, I would imagine, you know, the increase in friction just from the ravages of time and and uh, and and wear on the bearings salt would water. do it. Yeah, salt water as well. Yeah, um, yeah so, uh, salt water is incredible. Like salt is incredibly corrosive, and uh, offshore wind turbines are exposed to salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even the wind turbines on land are exposed to rain and and the and the elements i mean inherently so they don't do very well yes and that yeah yeah i guess mm -hmm. i guess maybe you could you could argue i'm, I'm not sure that's it's fair to argue this but maybe you could argue that uh, that solar power that that solar power plants uh are most productive in environments that are relatively benign whereas wind power plants by definition have to be product have to be most productive in somewhere where there's uh, you know more going to be more wear and tear but yeah. i suppose there's, there's also there's also sand i suppose so you, you want you want to find somewhere that's sunny that doesn't have sand that's going to sort of that's going to rub up against it and I, I suppose there's bird droppings as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, sand could be as so long as everything has so complications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as long as there aren't sand uh, sand storms that cover the solar yeah. panels. Um, yeah, it, it it brings it 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 brings me or it, it, I, I'm reminded of I think The Martian. I don't know if you've if read the book or seen the movie, the Andrew, Andy Weir book. Um, one of the regular maintenance items on 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 The Martian, the uh, the astronauts' to do list was to clean the dust off of the solar panels because the Martian dust was a real problem, would block out a lot of the sun. And so every day you'd have to get up and physically sweep them off. Um, 
So yeah, I could imagine sand being a big problem. I think said that now. Yeah. I think you said that though. The the wasn't there I think that the Martian rover seemed to be going good for years and years. I don't know whether they had like windscreen wipers or something like that or yeah, or whether the sure. Martian is in, well, maybe maybe it's just a dramatic sort of something mm-hmm. that's dramatic to, to to kind of make the environment look extra harsh. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have thought the Martian robot would be going for like, I don't know, years and years unattended if, if Martian dust was that much of a problem. But Yeah, know. yeah, that's a very good point. I, I would, yeah, we'd have to ask Andy Weir about that. <laughs> Maybe it was just a dramatization because, yeah, I would think the... The other thing about Mars is that the atmosphere is very, very thin, and while there are dust storms, I wonder if there's enough atmosphere to kick up enough dust to uh, cake onto solar panels or not. That's a, that's a good point. I think, I think I think there are dust storms. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't, I'm I'm not a Martian geographer. You'll have to, yeah. <laughs> you'll, have to, you'll have to interview a Martian geographer to to answer that question. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I would I would have thought that I'm just I'm just saying that I would have thought that you know that, that if if dust was a problem everywhere on Mars then the Martian rover would be knocked yeah. out faster. Yeah, no, and it it went much longer than expected. Even it's, it's mm. a good thing. It was a sad day when it when it had to sign off. That's for sure. Um, yeah, but the point being that that solar panels are just inherently I think uh, better. <laughs> better than than wind turbines. The only advantage to wind turbines, of course, is that they uh, can be used in areas that aren't very sunny. Um, and I think that's probably where they're the most they're most popular, especially in Europe, is in in northern countries and their offshore wind turbines. But in your your article, you've outlined a really cool solution to, I guess the vast distance between sunny areas and not so sunny areas where people live. Um, so you talk about using solar energy to turn uh, CO2 into methane, which then can be transported pretty easily using the, the vast network of pipelines that we've already built for uh, natural gas. And then uh, you can basically trans- transport that solar energy in the form of methane gas to the areas that aren't so sunny, and they can use those uh, use 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 those that methane gas to power turbines um, and use and electricity. So that's something that's I hadn't thought about, but um, yeah, talk a little bit about that about that infrastructure. Do you think that's a this system is a stopgap between uh, you know between sort of what we have today? And, and a future where there are, um, say, high-voltage direct current grids connecting solar panels in sunny areas to, not so, to areas that aren't so sunny? Um, or do you think it's more of a long-term solution? Hmm. I mean, um, the, the, the simple thing is that uh, mm. right now we have a fossil fuel infrastructure that works. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that, that civilization is ticking along fine because we've got this fossil fuel infrastructure that can that can like we, we every time we turn on the light the light every time we turn a light switch the light goes on it, that uh, we have a fossil fuel infrastructure that uh, that has all these inventories of fossil fuels um that uh, that that can be draw that power plants can draw upon and use as much as they need when they need and uh, and all that kind of inventory and 
global logistics has all worked out to a you know it's it's worked down to a T. Um, so the current fossil fuel infrastructure works when it comes to delivering energy to people uh, as much energy as they want when they want, and that's the big and that that's the big concern with renewable energy is that uh, is that how do we because because renewable energy is generated uh, when the sun shines or when the wind blows. So that's that's the big question. You know, how do you how do you uh, how do you deal with the the intermittency? And uh, the simplest answer is to use renewable energy is, is to use renewable energy to generate fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. That's that's the simplest way to to do it is to just generate fossil fuels with renewables. And uh, you know, I, I I did power to gas because that's because the 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 larger the the carbon chain you generate, more the more energy gets lost in the transition process. I mean, you you can you can make oil from from CO2 and water uh, using renewable energy as well as gas. Um, it, it it doesn't need to be gas; it can be you know, oil. Um, I don't think you want to do coal because because actually oil and gas are easier to transport than coal. Um, coal uh, coal I think is typically mined close to power plants because it, the transportation is is costly, but yeah, there's gas pipelines, there's oil pipelines, and already, already, um, oil and gas are transported in a very energy efficient way over huge distances. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, there's plenty, plenty of storage, and that's and and, and all that storage is in infrastructure that's already been built. Um, the the gas storage is actually um, is actually gas mines so so a country would originally <clears throat> mine gas from its you know would mine gas locally and then when all the gas was used up the gas mine would be empty but uh, if you attach it to a to a to a gas pipeline then you can sort of you can take gas from another country and pump it into the gas mine in your own country right and that can be a huge a huge uh, a huge store of energy it can store months and months of uh, of energy for you know, for the country. So yeah, if you, if you just if you just uh, generate gas from from solar power, the whole issue about storage is you know it's pretty much solved. Yeah, and and I think it's also um, correct me if I'm wrong. Also, perhaps killing two birds with one stone in that this turning uh, CO two or taking CO two out of the atmosphere, turning it into methane or another form of of oh. carbon fuel. Um, well, I, I, I'm not. I'm, you don't need to take it out of the atmosphere. You, yeah, uh, it, it, it's cheaper to actually take it out of the power plants. So, so you you move the methane from the sunny. So you move the methane from the areas that are sunny uh, to the areas that are less sunny, who, which need the energy. Then you burn them in a gas power, a, gas, a local gas power plant, or perhaps a fuel cell. Um, but immediately after you burn them and turn them into CO2. You capture the CO2 while it's high density. It's it's easier to because because the current the atmospheric density of CO2 is 0.03%. I think maybe it's 0.04% now, but but mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it's still very low a very low proportion of the of the atmosphere. Um, so if you if you kind of if you just take the CO2 immediately as it's produced by the by the local gas power plant in the in the in the, in the society that needs energy the country that needs energy 
then um, then it, it's much easier to sequester it. Right. And then well, you take the CO2 back to the country that has the surplus of energy, and then you and then you yeah, and again sort of reacting reacting CO. So so you use the electricity to electrolyze hydrogen. And then you'd have some other reaction, I think, uh, the Sabatier reaction, it's called anyway, that, that turns the sort of the hydrogen and um, and uh, CO2, high density CO2 into methane. And again, if the CO2 is maintained at high density, it's I think it's uh, I think it's more economical than than getting it from the atmosphere. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. Maybe not. I mean, maybe it might be um, maybe if you had a really efficient way of getting it from the atmosphere, it might make sense not to transport so many distances. And then, of course, there's the hydrogen economy as well, that uh, it, it, you might be able to do the whole thing without CO2. You might be able to do do it with hydrogen rather than CO2. So I, I would actually, I'd actually, to answer your first question, do I think that this whole system is um, is permanent or is the, is the system permanent or is the system just a temporary stopgap? I would say... Probably in the long term, you'd probably want to do hydrogen rather than um, rather than uh, rather than methane, mm -hmm. uh, because because with hydrogen you can create the hydrogen, burn the you don't need any capture and storage. You can create the hydrogen and burn the hydrogen, and you don't need to sort of transmit the CO2 back to the place with the solar power. You can just you can just get more water from you can just get more water locally and. And then when you burn the hydrogen, water comes out, so it doesn't add to global warming. <clears throat> right. So I, right, I think in no. the long run, yeah, hydrogen. Um, in in the short run, in the short run, maybe hydrogen, but uh, but it's just that uh, that I, I think I think some of the hydrogen, I believe some hydrogen can do damage to to the existing gas pipes. So we you might need to build new infrastructure or at least upgrade the infrastructure to be able to transport large amounts of hydrogen. But the, the thing is, we, we already have an infrastructure for transmitting gas. We already have ships that transmit liquefied nitrogen gas and 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 and, uh, and pipelines that transmit methane. So so it, it seems to me safer, at least in the short term, to to go with um, to go with a uh, a system that uh, to go with a system where which large scale our large scale infra we know for a fact our large scale infrastructure is already capable of handling. So it's a it's a closed loop system, um, in that when you're burning the methane or whatever gas that you've made using solar panel uh, solar energy, you're you're recapturing the CO two right at the source, and and basically piping it back to the country that has an abundance of solar energy that can then use it to turn that right back into methane or another gas that can then be transported to the not so sunny area to be burned as fuel and and so it's it's a closed loop in that you're not you're not taking any co2 out of the atmosphere um but you are also not releasing it into the atmosphere so it becomes sort of a sealed almost a sealed system so to speak um where you're the, the co2 yeah, isn't it. yeah and so I guess the the problem or the challenge of bringing CO two levels back down or keep uh, to pre industrial levels, which I don't know if would be possible. That that's something that's completely different. That would be. I'm, I'm not even. Yeah. I'm not even sure it would be desirable. Right. Uh, because as far as I know, um, in a thousand years' time, we're due for another ice age. Mm. That uh, 
that uh, that we actually we actually if we if we went down to pre-industrial levels uh we may well go into an ice age that mm. uh pre-industrial pre-industrial levels uh, were the little ice age so so, so i mean it, it's I, I i'm not sure we necessarily want to go exactly back to where we came uh we just want to we just want to not to emit so much co2 that's going to be a disaster mm. uh, so so actually a little bit of global warming might be a good idea it's just you don't necessarily want a lot of global warming so probably the amount of global warming we have we've already had is is good enough i don't think we necessarily want to go all the way back i don't think we necessarily want a repeat of the little ice age either right. um so the climate naturally varies the climate is a, a very vicious beast by nature anyway that climate change um, like think about the ice age, the end of the ice age, uh, you know, think about glacial interglacial periods that they, they typically have involved temperature changes of, of six degrees or, or more very rapidly. Um, and, uh, and that, that's, that, that's obviously caused chaos to the local plants and animals at the time. And they've, they've had to adapt and, um, and we don't really want any of that thing to happen. So, and so if we want, so, so the, the the natural climate has the potential to destroy civilization, e even if human beings never touched the climate. Natural climatic variations could could destroy civilization someday. So, actually, in the long run, if we're going to think about the long game, we're probably going to want to actively regulate the climate to keep it stable and and benign. Right, but there's there's a difference between that and I think the present course. That humanity seems to be on which is 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 harvest and burn as much fossil fuels as possible um does seem to have a high chance of of disaster or too much heating too much insulation um that seems to be what, what we're looking at right now if we continue to burn fossil fuels at the same rate that we have been Yes, I mean yeah. we need to, we need to stop we need to stop right. burning more fossil fuels. I'm I'm not sure I, I'm not sure we should necessarily view all of the CO2 that's been emitted since 1800 as this sort of bad thing. Uh, um, that that uh, that you know if if we could stabilize CO2 at around the year 2000 or 2020 or perhaps 1990 levels, um, I think that would probably that would uh, my view that would probably be optimal. I, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think we want to go quite back to 1750 because because uh, it was it was actually pretty it was actually pretty cold before the Industrial Revolution. Um, but uh, yeah, if you could stabilize it to 1990s, that's probably optimal. Uh, like in the in the long run, it, we, you you definitely don't want to have to you don't you don't want to be forced to change the climate in a particular way in order to survive. Um, but but the, the, you know, to, in order to power civilization, you don't want to have to forcibly put this constant change in the climate. Um, Ideally, I think in the long run, we're probably going to want to regulate the climate. We're going to need to learn how the climate works, and then and then actually learn how to how to dampen down natural climate variations as well, because because natural climate variations can do a lot of damage, in addition to artificial ones. But mm -hmm. yeah, you don't want you don't want to have to artificially vary the climate. You want to, you want to actually look at the climate and think, okay, it, instead of saying oh we have to burn CO2 to survive, and we can't stop. It, you want to look at the climate and saying, okay, how's this climate moving? Uh, how can we, you know, is this a good thing? Oh, it's a bad thing. How can we correct it and and kind of and and sort of uh, control the climate intelligently? I think in the long run, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And thus, that's 
I think the goal of switching to a solar-based uh, energy economy is to sort of put on the brakes and to give us a little time to figure out exactly how the climate works, where the temperature levels are, are I guess, would be the best. <laughs> it gives us the freedom to to think about what we need to do to create an optimal climate for human well-being and for the natural world. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems, you know, I think with the the solar economy that you've outlined in your article, actually is a very hopeful picture uh, in the near term and in the, in the midterm um, for civilization because it is putting the brakes on, I guess, a lot of the, the CO2 that we are emitting into the atmosphere. It's using much of the infrastructure that we've, we've built that's been painstakingly built over the last hundred years. Um, and it's also, it seems relatively painless. Um, as far as as asking people to um, change the way that they live um, or to give up a lot of uh, uh, the modern conveniences that we all enjoy so you know when I read when I read through this article or when I when I look at a solar economy it's it's very a hopeful picture of it's more of a hopeful Star Trek uh, picture of the future than it is a dy dystopian picture of the future it's a yeah. it's a big infrastructure build project. Sure, you're gonna, you, you, the, there'll have to be a lot of money put into building these solar panels. Um, but uh, yeah, at least the the power to gas stuff. Um, I, I think that the storage stuff, and also I think the the, the biggest the biggest infrastructure build will be the solar panels. That's going to be a big infrastructure build, mm -hmm. and then um, and then the biggest R and D project will be, um, I suppose, efficiently converting the. Um, the, the solar power the, the solar power into um into gas or or fossil fuels or something like that mm -hmm. um so that that's that's something companies are already working on that you can yeah. find you can find companies that already do this um so yeah that it's just a question of making it affordable cool yeah so so we're looking at this this solar energy economy and we have ways of dealing with solar power uh, on land and and making sure that we can we can get the energy the solar energy from sunny areas to not so sunny areas but i think there are more pieces to the puzzle and you talk about shipping is a huge piece of the puzzle and that right now um you know it it, it is driving the global economy shipping is and all of these ships are uh diesel mostly diesel powered ships and they uh account for about 2.2% of CO2 emissions, so not insignificant, um, pretty significant source of CO2 emissions. Uh, and you discuss ways of, of, of cutting that down or even eliminating that. And I think one of the, well, the most interesting thing is, is using compact nuclear reactors, sort of similar to what uh, military vehicle or military vessels use. Yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this is another example of a of a tried and trusted technology. Um, if if a if a nuclear reactor can power an aircraft carrier, can power a, a cruise ship. Um, that's so so the the technology for powering ships without burning fossil fuels exists. It's, it's nuclear reactors. They already power submarines, aircraft carriers, all that kind of stuff. It's it's. I think it's more a political thing that people have these kind of political hang-ups with nuclear powered shipping. But but at the end of the day. Nuclear powered shipping—it's the only easy way to eliminate CO2 emissions from the 
maritime industry. And you know, global trade depends on the ocean. I mean, global trade depends on shipping. Without shipping, you don't have a global economy. So it's not. So we, we we can't just say, oh, let's let's just not do any shipping anymore, um, and and cut our CO2 emissions that way. You, you've got to have shipping uh, unless if it have a recognizable global economy. And the simplest way to get rid of CO2 emissions from the shipping industry is is nuclear powered shipping. The nuclear reactors already power ships. They already power military ships and. Yeah, they can be made to power power the uh, civilian shipping. I think the the USS Enterprise, I think, is one of the largest nuclear powered uh, sea vessels, the the aircraft carrier. Yes, and there was mm-hmm. a nuclear powered merchant ship called the NS Savannah, which mm-hmm. was built in 1959, and in 1969 it became the first nuclear powered ship to dock in New York City for a festival called Nuclear Week in New York. <laughs> it's very different. You couldn't get away with Nuclear Week in New York today. <laughs> yeah. Nuclear, especially nuclear fission reaction, has, has once again in, in the forefront of everybody's mind, I think mostly due to the Chernobyl miniseries that was released on Netflix, which everyone is, is watching and I think one of the the takeaways from that, I, I, you know, like everybody, I started doing a lot more research on light water and nuclear fission reactors, and it it became apparent that actually the um, the smaller the reactor, um, like say reactors that power these these ships, the the easier they are to shut down. Also, mass produce. Um, yeah. If you have that, you if you have a small unit, you can. It, it's easier to have a. A factory that churns out small nuclear power units than than large ones, um, and the other thing is, I, I'm actually I'm not sure about I'm not sure about nuclear energy, um, in terms of powering all our electricity because that there isn't enough. Uh, well, I mean, known reserve. My, my understanding is I'm, I might I may be off by a factor of three or four, but but my understanding is that nuclear energy produces six percent of global energy at the moment. And existing uranium reserves are sufficient for 135 years. So, if if it's producing 20th of our global energy, and existing uranium reserves will you know will provide a good for 135 years, that means that if we went to producing all of our energy with nuclear power, then um, then uranium reserves would only last about I don't know six years, ten years, something something really quite short. You know, like the the, the but but if we but but because global shipping is only a third of our existing energy use, um, existing nuclear I mean I mean nuclear energy could be um, that the standard nuclear energy could power nuclear shipping for for four centuries. You know, I mean could power all of our shipping for four centuries. Right. And, I, and so I, so there's there's, mm-hmm. there's there's plenty of uranium for our shipping needs. There's just not enough uranium for for the other energy needs. Yeah, and I think especially the the amount of fuel that is actually consumed in a fuel rod b- before it has to be replaced is very small as well. So, um, at least in current reactors, it's they're they're not especially efficient when it comes to using up all of the fuel in the in the fuel uh, rods. Um, so oh well, yeah, I mean that, that, yeah. that's that's breeder reactors. Breeder reactors can massively improve the efficiency of of. Uh, of nuclear fuel consumption, but um, they're they're an experimental technology right now. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe in a few decades, in, maybe in a few decades, 
or you know 30 40 years it could uh, it could be increased but I, I i somehow think that solar power is like like breeder reactors are not yet commercial solar panels already are commercial so i think for the bulk energy needs just to be conservative i think i think i think when you're trying to solve a problem you want to go for the thing that that works and has been shown to work and so with the solar power solar panels have been shown to work um, you know, they, they work and, and people are building them and they work. Um, and again, sort of storage, power to gas. Well, you know, gas, we already know that fossil fuels work as an energy storage source because we already use this as an energy storage source. So if you then take the solar panels that work and you use them to produce fossil fuels, then then you've got a, a system that um, that produces that 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 we know is going to be able to produce electricity and we know it's going to be able to create a kind of an inventory system that will uh, that that will produce the energy as and when we need, um, and then uh, and then again we know naval reactors work, um, so so that will give us um, yeah uh, shipping. So I'm I'm just thinking about this from a from a reasonably conservative uh, position. I mean you could have you could have nuclear fusion reactors or or breeder reactors or all sorts of stuff, but that that's all new technology. But yeah, we we all I'm saying is that we we know naval reactors work. Um, yeah. And, and if we just use the existing naval reactors that we know work, um, to, and and we use then, then there's enough uranium, there's enough existing fissile uranium, to <clears throat> to power them for three or four centuries. Yeah, and uh, well, I think this is um, <coughs> we're looking at a solar energy economy. The fact that all the technology already exists, um, <clears throat> and is and it's getting better quite quickly as well. I think solar panels are getting more and more efficient um, at a faster rate than than uh, any of the other energy technologies you're working on presently. Yeah. Wind is also getting better, but it's getting bigger at the same time. And right. the other thing I, I wonder about is that, um, especially offshore wind turbines, that uh, what if the ice caps do melt? Um, if, if the ice caps do melt and the sea level rises like 50 meters, um, if the if the if the bottom propeller blade of an offshore wind turbine hits the sea then then that means the entire then that means that all the offshore wind turbines in the world will be useless right and there are many 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 of them so that's that's a big well, if problem we, if we, yeah if we, yeah, if we <laughs> want if we want to supply all our energy with all let, let's say we supply build enough offshore wind turbines to supply 30 percent of our energy needs and um but but we don't quite solve you know solve the problem and the ice tax melt then we'll lose 30% of our energy producing capacity if if the sea level rises enough so that the the bottom blade of the the blades skim the water surface so the, that that's another thing we have to think about really carefully because um because renewable energy costs a lot of money to build so we it, it'd be important to think about um making renewable energy robust to to climate change so i mean hopefully hopefully we can avert climate change but we need we, we need to think carefully about um about you know if if in a worst case scenario and the climate does change significantly uh will the renewable energy plants get totaled by extreme weather for example uh, i think and that's another advantage to solar panels in that like you said they're typically in pretty benign locations uh even if the <laughs> Even if the climate were to get hotter, um, I suppose you would have to contend with uh, uh, heat, excessive heat, where the solar panels are. But um, you know, you normally wouldn't expect them to be flooded out or hit by a hurricane if they're if they're in the desert. So 
there's that. <laughs> I guess. I guess the mm -hmm. other thing is they can be. You, you, maybe you can build flat pack solar panels so that so that if a field's in a bad location, you can just kind of get a load of trucks and put all the you know pack all the solar panels up and and drive them to another location. Probably quite a lot of labor would be involved in taking it out and rebuilding it as the climate changes. You might get extreme weather in places you didn't expect it originally. That's true. Um, and the easier it is to move the renewable energy, the renewable energy systems, the more the, the more likely they won't be destroyed. Yeah, the solar panels are smaller; they're not as big as wind turbines, so so they should be easier to move as well. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I do I do realize that there there are deserts that are subject to flash flooding, so <laughs> it's not it's, they're or not tornadoes. Completely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tornadoes. You want you want to. You want to find some way of stopping tornadoes from destroying solar panels. So, but, but again, I suppose there's the, the weather usually has patterns. So, so mm -hmm. there's some areas which get a lot of tornadoes and other areas that don't get so much. So you put the solar panels in the areas that get less tornadoes. Mm -hmm. So the last, or not uh, the last, but another piece of the puzzle is uh, airline travel. We should know that, that airplanes, <laughs> uh, yeah. This is <laughs> that's the hardest one. <laughs> it's quite a conundrum, yeah. In that they, um, it takes a lot of energy <laughs> to get off the ground uh, and to travel at those speeds. So, but you suggest that you know it's not it's not insurmountable in that uh, there 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 are ways around it. So you you say um, you know we can go with maglev high speed rail, which is uh, quickly approaching I guess two thirds the speed of 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 you know aircraft and there are already trains in in china and japan and, and europe that are blindingly fast um mm. you know i think you you could right now where you are you can get from from london to paris on the on the tgv right in uh uh in just a matter of hours which is fantastic yeah yeah so light you know um high speed rail is is an option and it's doable and and it can be powered again those are those trains are are electric so they can be powered by solar energy um yeah so that's one good way around it and i think um i was actually quite uh, quite surprised to see that electric aircraft electric powered aircraft might actually be a thing uh in the future and definitely a hybrid aircraft um, I've seen a, a well, where'd you where did you get the electric powered aircraft? What were they? Just like <laughs> I've heard, aluminium batteries. I, I, mm -hmm. I have heard aluminium batteries have the kind of energy densities that might be uh, comparable to to um to, to, to fossil fuels. Uh, mm -hmm. Another thing is metal powder. Yes, that's very interesting. So yeah, you say that actually just burning metal power, uh, iron oxide dust uh, is is extremely energy dense and i don't think uh many people think of it as as an energy source but you can actually iron oxide powder which is just rust dust well no 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 not right? iron oxide powder just uh, iron? iron powder really uh, iron okay. powder and it, well yeah you burn the iron and then it turns into iron oxide so you mm -hmm. got iron powder and then you burn it in air and then the oxygen in the air reacts mm -hmm. with the iron to produce iron oxide so um so, uh, well, pe people don't think about it as an energy source because to make the iron in the first place, you need to use energy. So it's just an energy vector. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it's it's a, it's an energy vector. But but it's an energy vector that uh, yeah. So the, the amount of energy used to produce the iron would exceed the um, 
Mm. Well, it would be about the same or more, well, probably more than the energy released. But uh, but that iron powder is is a dense form of energy, and it's denser than gasoline. So so you could you could think of it as a as a useful thing to it. it so that that's one thing that could be dense enough to power an aircraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think um, it, there are a few startups that I found that are researching using solid state batteries that may have high enough capacity um and they're building air aircraft very small though we're looking uh, a couple examples i saw is a, a 12 seat aircraft um so very small pilot programs um using battery powered oh. airplanes but it's yeah it's very tough i think energy density isn't right. high enough and batteries are really heavy and the the yeah. thing about aircraft is the speed. I mean, the the yeah. reason why people the reason why people use aircraft is to get from point A to point B quickly. So if you if you kind of if you've if you've done your little bit to build a twelve seater plane that travels at you know fifty miles an hour to save the world, well, well, nobody's going to use it. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so so you, so so building an aircraft. It's it's easy enough to build a battery powered aircraft. It's a lot harder to build a battery-powered aircraft that travels at the cruising speed of a jet, and and travels for like you know, ten thousand kilometers at the cruising speed of a jet. That, that's that's much harder. Um, yeah, I've, I've looked. I, I had a load of things in my um in my in my. I had a load of suggestions, but yeah, sort of uh, replacing with maglevs, biofuels, or or or, or or just I guess synthesized fuels. If we're if we're talking about making um making gasoline out of solar power um then yeah you, you could you, you could just synthesize that but of course then this then you don't have the co2 anymore the co2 will still get into the atmosphere so so you might have to absorb it um uh, from you, you could either absorb it synthetically or absorb it by growing plants or something like that mm-hmm. um yeah replacing with maglev i like metal powder metal powder uh, metal powder as a work in pro yeah so high-speed trains is something you could do i mean high-speed trains is a, a technology that already exists um, metal powder is, uh, I think metal powder is a good, uh, is, uh, is a good candidate. I, I think there's a lot to be said for putting a lot of R and D effort into producing, you know, trying to produce a, a, a jet that flies using metal powder. Um, I think that that would definitely be a worthwhile project. Yeah. Then I had radioisotopes and beam powered propulsion, but mm-hmm. to be honest, I think the the pretty, the pretty out there ideas. Um, but metal powder, is probably worth looking into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe, yeah, unfortunately, flying less, I think, <laughs> is this probably yeah. the easiest solution. <laughs> um, one thing, one yeah. thing is that, uh, is that because the nuclear shipping could probably travel two or three times faster than standard shipping because uranium is a very energy-dense source, so... You might be able to get across the ocean and uh, maybe you could get across the ocean, I don't know, the Atlantic Ocean in a week or less or something like that. If you, if you, if you traveled by with a nuclear powered ship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, even even the uh, the the USS Enterprise, the, the nuclear powered aircraft carrier, which is as big as a small city, <laughs> it it can go um, about 30, 33 knots, which is almost 40 miles an hour. Um or 62 kilometers an hour it's pretty pretty quick for such a massive thing and i'd imagine that you can uh 
you could get similar speeds with uh, with uh, large container ships that are, were nuclear powered. So I'm not sure you'd really be bothered. You wouldn't. I'm not yeah. sure you necessarily want to bother getting to those speeds with large container ships because well, because of the fuel economy. But uh, but for but for sort of a passenger ship or a cruise ship where people care about time. You, you probably you, you probably you, you probably could you maybe even go even even faster um and uh yeah one of the things about shipping is that uh one thing is about a ship is it's it's big enough so you're not you're not cooped up so if you're traveling if you're if you're in a plane traveling for 10 hours is is about the maximum you can do like being being cooped up like cattle for like 10 hours is <laughs> it's not fun but with a ship you know there's there's the, the, the like cruise ships these days are, are quite nice things they got swimming pools and and everything like that so it's not it's not torture being on a ship so speed isn't as important when you're on a ship as when you're on a plane because you can kind of walk around and go to restaurants and swim in a swimming pool or you know play <laughs> yeah. play games it's, it's kind of it's more fun yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. but, th- but think about it was it tw- 40 miles an hour times 24 is uh that, that that's almost a thousand miles a day isn't mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah, not no, bad. 900, 960 miles a day so that's that that, that 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 yeah not 40 miles an hour 960 miles a day that would get you that would get you across the atlantic in four or five days yeah yeah it's not bad so five, so five times yeah so i mean so so if you if you consider your waking hours it's maybe five times longer than a plane, and and it's much more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So of course, it's of course it's ten times longer than a plane, but because you're sleeping half the time, right? If you got the nights and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It it, it seems um, that to become carbon neutral, uh, we'll we'll need to slow down quite a bit. I think just in general. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how society handles that because slowing down will have a direct effect on on quality of life to be sure so but yeah we'll see if it can ha- if if it can happen yeah mm-hmm. i don't think we necessarily need to slow down that much but uh but slowing down slowing down a little here and there is mm-hmm. you know like the high-speed trains. The, the other thing oh, is, yeah. if, you, if you think about how much time you spend in an airport compared to how much time you spend in a train station, it, like the train system, the train system is just so you know the, it's just so much more streamlined than aircrafts. So, so uh, I, I'd say for medium distances, even like three or four hundred kilometers, I wouldn't say there'd be much difference between a maglev train and an and an airplane just because of you know the whole queuing and security that happens in air- aircraft airports mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah for sure it's it's so much faster and more relaxed to take a train than it is uh you know just i mean the process of getting on board is is so much faster and relaxed more relaxed than trying to board an aircraft or uh, another thing i wanted to to discuss is that i think it's easy given the the dire warnings about the climate you know from even relatively conservative organizations like the ipcc uh, it's easy to be pessimistic and it's easy to um to be very doomsday about things 
we kind of have a responsibility to try to look on the bright side and to see how to try to solve these problems rather than 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 falling into a deep depression about about the pending the the pending roasting of civilization uh, by increased 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 weather uh, uh, increased temperatures. I mean, so I, I don't think yeah. I don't think the problems are that hard to solve. Mm-hmm. Actually, like um, if you if you think of a if you think about just just to, so solar panels has already been solved at this point. Um, then nuclear shipping is something that's solved technologically. It's just it's just something people have political hang-ups about. Um, and then um, high-speed trains, that's just something you need to build. The one thing that we need to put a lot more effort into is is converting uh, CO2 into fossil fuels, um, such as gas. Gas is the easiest one, or petroleum. Um, so that yeah, and and that's that's a technology that that people are working on and they're making progress on that too. Um, so there's not, there's not a huge amount to solve. It's just, it's just a question of, of rolling up your sleeves and building the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That's the, that, that's the thing that will take a lot of effort. Um, but when you think about, when you think about all the people who, you know, who just do meaningless bureaucratic tasks, um, that, you know, it, you know, just work in offices or sort of just, just think about the amount of time we waste. If, if if a lot of people just built the energy infrastructure that needed to be built, it would happen very, very rapidly. I mean, I, I don't think energy... Uh, the energy share of the global economy is 8.2% according to this method. Yeah, so it's about 8% of GDP. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could, you could, you could, uh, you could spend more increase from 8% to 30% or something like that and, and, uh, and get the thing built pretty quick. I think we only spend about one percent of our money on agriculture, and I think we only spend about one percent of the economy on actually growing food in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one one of the things people are concerned about with climate change, I guess, that the the biggest concern is is famines, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and, and what yeah, croplands, crop the, the the current areas that we grow food, they seem to be. Um, you know, if global temperatures increase, it seems like almost all of the bread baskets of the world will will dry up. Will be subjected subjected to pretty bad droughts. So, yeah. So, so mm-hmm. famine is famine is a really big concern about is is the thing people can is the main. It's really the main concern is famine. Uh, but I'm not sure whether that's unavoidable. Like, like really, um, Singapore, for example, is working hard to make itself food independent by building these vertical farms. If the population of Singapore can feed itself on the land area of Singapore, then we don't need that much area to produce food. I think uh, I think green I think certain crops grown in greenhouses can produce ten percent no, ten ten to a hundred times the yield of of crops grown in, in the open air. So um if we put if we spend more money on producing food, um we could probably feed ourselves with, uh, you know, with more expensive infrastructure and less land. So even if the even if the climate does change in a really bad way and and we lose hundreds and millions of acres, um, we could probably, if, you know, if 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 we really needed to, we could probably build. We could probably just spend more on building infrastructure like greenhouses and and stuff like that to increase food production. And the other thing is that. Uh, you know the world already has loads of spare capacity in food production that uh, that a huge amount of of 
agricultural land is, is spent on meat production and uh, and vegetables take about a quarter of that area. Mm-hmm. Well, not to mention the amount of food that is just currently wasted, that's grown, produced, and just never eaten. It's tremendous, I think. <laughs> it's a very high percentage. Yeah, yeah just, just getting the food um, that we grow to to the people who need to eat it, uh, if we could solve that, you know, we would have a lot of food left over, actually. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think, and, and the thing is, we actually, we don't spend that much money on food either. I mean, we, well, when we spend money on the fight, we spend a lot of money in restaurants. I spend a lot of money in restaurants. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but when it comes to actually growing food, uh, as opposed to process to get into fancy pants kind of, uh, fancy pants meals and you know gourmet meals or, or that kind of stuff when it comes to just growing food rather than processing it i, I think we we not that much of the gdp is you know go not much of the gdp goes to farmers i think i think in america it might be as little as one percent of gdp it you know actually goes to farmers who who grow food to feed the country so that that's how efficient it is so so there's there really is a lot of spare economic capacity to deal with uh with you know declining food production mm-hmm. and and there are and there are answers like like greenhouses and and things like that yeah and i think also um you know the arable land that we have now may not be arable in the future but uh, there you know it, it would move into different areas and i think um, there's also that possibility but i wonder even if if things say around the mid latitudes heat, heat up to the point where farmland we have now just becomes more desert than farmland you know moving further north or or south moving that farmland north or south i'm not sure if it's even possible um that's another question i have a big issue is political a a big issue is political that if if uh if one country turns into a desert and the country north of it turns into kind of a a a lush agricultural sort of paradise. What's the country that turns into a desert going to think? That, that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the things people are talking about, was it climate refugees, that, uh, that if, if, one, if, if some country turns into a desert, the next country turns into a paradise, then the people in the country that's now a desert uh, are going to want to move into the country that's, you know, whose food produ- production has gone up, mm-hmm. I would imagine, which again causes quite a lot of political tensions as well Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's probably the the main threat um from any climate change uh is 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 the political tensions that that it causes just from people having to move um it's pretty pretty simple you know if if where you're living becomes too hot or just awful to live in you can't grow food you have to move to where it it's not awful and that that just that simple fact causes a lot of strife so um, yeah, I mean that's the mm-hmm. thing that the, the the solutions to climate change, both in terms of reducing CO two and um, and and even coping with increasing temperatures, um, are I mean the the, the solution there, there are solutions to it, but uh, but it, it's coordinating people to do that effectively rather than you know rather than and hoping that it's not going to sort of trigger some war and that we can we can kind of. Uh, adapt to it in a in a sort of a civilized mannerly way rather than sort of suddenly going at each other's throats and panicking and things like that yeah it's a challenge but i think there's 
I think there there's there's uh, there's reasons to be hopeful. <laughs> um, and just the fact that we have the technologies, the tools to to fix a lot of the problems that, that we've created or that we face, um, I think is reason enough to be hopeful that, that we're, yeah, we've, yeah, we've got, we've got tools to produce. We've got, we, we've got, I mean, there are energy systems that can produce energy without producing CO2. I, I think, you know, solar seems to be the most promising by a very, very large margin. Mm -hmm. Um, there are ways of transporting things that don't require CO2. Um, there are, I mean, and, and then, and then, if we, if the worst case scenario happens and the climate does change, there's there's ways of producing uh, food more efficiently, such as you know using hydroponics or vertical farming or, or something like that, um, and and we have a lot of spare economic capacity to produce food to feed the world as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it it makes me hopeful, and I think, um, yeah, I you know I ended the last podcast, and I think uh, really. <laughs> My my takeaway is that I'm really going to encourage my son to uh, continue with his love of science, uh, engineering, and math. <laughs> we're going to need we're going to need more engineers, more scientists, uh, more more mechanically minded people in, in the future. Um, that, that was my that's my main takeaway. Yeah, STEM yeah. STEM is uh, is still uh, is still a set of skills sure. that uh, that is is in demand by the economy and it's probably going to be in demand perhaps even you know demand even, might even rise as time goes by more than ever yeah i think yeah it's good and and maybe it's this is a little philosophical i think there is still a lot of value and a, a lot of uh, uh people needed to help smooth the transitions uh to to help with the political problems that these changes in our environment are going to going to cause so they're sort of converse uh we do need lots of Lots of scientists and engineers uh, to help solve the problems, but I think we do also need uh, talented politicians and people who can bring people together. Um, I think that's just as important. So <laughs> I don't want to yes, be, yes. yeah, yeah. I don't want to just be. Uh, I know there, there's a lot of pushback to to in education now. People saying that uh, we're focused too focused on STEM. And there's not enough focus on 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 uh, history and sociology and 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 even the arts, the very human uh, study of 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 humanity itself. Um, I think it's equally important because, you know, we can develop all the technology in the world, but if we can't bring people together uh, to help build it, it's it's kind of useless. So, ideally, yeah. ideally, you want people who have skills in both. I mean, I sure. I. I I did a science degree, but I've been reading loads and loads of philosophy recently. I, I think I think having a rounded education and um, I, you know I think I think people in arts should should study science and people in science should study arts and actually like the the I, I think I think I think we want lots and lots of people who are well rounded and I think I think the arts are important and the sciences are important and and ideally we want people who are competent in everything. Sure, yeah. that, that'd be the ideal anyway. Yeah, it's the ideal. Yeah, and that's I think that's the human ideal, really. That's I think that's why humans have been so successful is that we are exceptionally well-rounded just naturally. <laughs> you know, the, even the average person has a such a broad range of interests and uh I think that's what what makes us human. We're curious curious and e exceptionally smart monkeys. 
Yeah, I yeah. think I think uh, I think we I think we definitely have the potential to be very rounded. Um, sure. Yeah. So some some people end up some people do end up getting narrow and obsessive, but uh, but certainly certainly a, a child has the potential to develop into a very rounded person. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, this is great. Um, thank you again for for uh, for chatting. This has been this has been great. I I, I enjoyed it. I think. Um, I really wanted this podcast to be sort of a turning point away from the doom and gloom and into more of the, the awe and wonder and hopeful um, outlook on life that, that, that science can, can foster in you. I think the reason, one of the big reasons I got in uh, really fascinated with science to begin with is, you know, um, this sort of Star Trek vision of the future, this, this utopia in which a lot of our, uh, physical problems have, have been solved by technology and and it kind of leaves us free to do exploring both uh outer exploration of you know space and 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 uh the world around us but also uh, exploring our own inner selves so uh that's that's really more where i wanted to <laughs> want to take the podcast the doom and gloom stuff is is uh is there and it, it can't be denied but I think being a beacon of light is is better than being a, a harbinger of doom. Yeah, I mean yeah. The, the original the original uh, the original uh, meaning of technology I think is craft. I think that's what technology was originally referred to as, as sort of craft. And in that that sense, in in the early days, everyone was a technologist. Like hunter gatherers um, spent their time hunting and gathering and building tools and like the hunter gatherers were were very uh were, were very focused on on crafts they 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 were they were big into building tools and into knowing the how how the animals worked uh same with farmers were interested in the craft of farming and and ultimately um when, when you think about the the goods of society that um you know they, they, they those goods of society come from an intelligent interaction with the natural world and um yeah if you think of the, I think the average peasant in medieval towns uh, spent their, you know, spent, the, you know, could do all sorts of things. They could grow food. They could, they could build, build. I think they probably built their own houses and uh, and made tools. And they were kind of jacks of all trades. So, so kind of the the natural state of mankind is is kind of as a craftsman. Um, and and it, and ultimately our kind of our intelligent interaction with nature that that produces more wealth and more prosperity for everyone. Mm-hmm. that's great I think it's a good note to end on and that's it folks thanks for listening you can learn more about me at my website dustindriver.com check out John's website johnmccone.com that's j-o-h-n m-c-c-o-n-e dot com you could subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, or Podbean It's also now on Stitcher, which is pretty damn cool. Thanks for listening, and join me next time as we continue through the unknown.